0: Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, every time we pray, I think part of the reason you invite us to do that is uh, we need it uh, to remember that you are here with us. And so, Father, we remember that right now, that as we are gathering in this place with each other at this time, you are here. You are the one who has invited us. And in your word, you are the one who is speaking to us right now. And Lord, we confess we barely even understand what that means, but we ask together that you would help us, help us to hear you as you speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, a friend of mine, not someone from this church, shared with me a personal story of something kind of mysterious he spoke. Of how years earlier he was um, in a hard place in his life. He was frustrated with things. He felt kind of hopeless. He was going for a walk and at a certain point where he was just kind of on this field by himself. He just kind of cried out. And he didn't he wasn't a Christian at the time. He didn't even know who he was crying out to, but he just kind of was crying out for God. To help him and he says in that moment something that I still can't describe it's like I was filled with light it's like I was filled with power I was filled with this overwhelming sense that God was there and ever since I have been convinced that I experienced God in that moment let me ask you when you hear stories like that one how how, stories maybe of, of kind of a divine encounter or stories of angels, or demons, or inexplicable events that people see as miracles, how do you respond when you hear stuff like that? I think in our time, it's it's understandable, it's, it's natural for people to respond with a certain degree of skepticism, because we understand that it's easy at times for people to misinterpret things. A, a satellite suddenly becomes a UFO in people's imagination, or... Or, or just kind of sounds or inexplicable coincidences suddenly is a spirit. Or, or even just that sense of when you're with other people and that sense of euphoria can be interpreted as the presence of God. We, we realize that not everything that people think is supernatural really is. There are some things that have natural explanations. And yet there is a fine line, I think, between being carefully skeptical and stubbornly refusing to see what is before our eyes. It's interesting to me, I noticed recently that uh, two different magazines, neither of which are remotely considered Christian, The Atlantic and The Esquire, both had extensive articles talking about exorcisms. And, And they weren't meant to lampoon the idea, actually what they had was this kind of thoughtful, confusion, where, yes, they recognize some of these things, where there's thousands of people seeking exorcism, some of these things almost certainly had psychiatric explanations, and yet there are some things that psychiatrists and, and psychologists says, we don't know quite what's going on. And, and if you've been at our church for any length of time, you you might know that when we have people coming back from Haiti, like you know Ted will be sharing later on, sometimes they will share about how they experience right before them what can only be described as demonic possessions. What do we do with that? In any given room, I've heard this from people who have kind of studied this, if it's a large enough group of people, we will hear, if we somehow were able to get the walls down of people openly talking about their own lives, I think we would be surprised by the number of people's stories, of things that they cannot explain, things that they can only speak of as as divine encounters, conversations with angels, ways that prayers were answered that have no other explanation, real, clear senses of divine. Again and again, we hear stories like that. What do we do with all of that? You know, I was thinking about it this week. One of the things that's striking to me, that phrase, An act of God. Do you know the only people who ever speak of an act of God these days are the insurance people? Right? And, And that's interesting, because I think in some ways we're saying that the only thing we can even imagine God doing in our world anymore is bring disasters. But what if that is really not the way things are? What if God actually, truly acts in a way that is involved in our daily lives. Where he's not some far removed being, but he is with us acting. I I would suggest that what we have just read, chapter one of this letter where Paul is writing to his friends in the Thessalonian church, is documented evidence of exactly this. That Paul, as he is speaking to the Thessalonians, is describing God acting. And he is speaking uh, before witnesses that everyone saw this. And so what I want us to do is just to kind of look, just to look at what Paul is talking about in these verses. And as we come to understand what's taking place, I I would like to kind of make two observations. This is where I'm going to go with this. that, That what he's describing really happened. And that the only reasonable, or at least by far the most reasonable explanation for what took place is that God stepped in and acted. So first, let's, let's just kind of try looking at the way that Paul describes this, the things in this chapter to, to understand what took place. And if you don't have your bulletins open or your Bibles open, I invite you to look with me as we try to understand what took place. If you were with us last week, you might remember that that what's happening here is Paul has just been kicked out of Philippi, he has been beaten, he's bruised, imprisoned, and forced out, and now he's coming to Thessalonica, he and Silas Silvanus at the very beginning, that name is the same as Silas, he and Silas and Timothy are coming to the Thessalonian church with limps, faces puffy, clothes perhaps tattered, looking like failures. And, and on the first Saturday they're there, Paul comes to the synagogue. Before everyone else gathers, and he meets with the synagogue leader. And when the synagogue leader realizes that before him is a Sanhedrin trained teacher, he is happy to give Paul the sermon slots in their service. That makes his job way easier. So, synagogue gathers, and kind of like a church service, you have songs, you have the reading of the law, and you have the reading of the prophets. And then Paul is invited to come forward, and he speaks. And and he starts with these very verses that were read in the Law and the Prophets, and he begins to explain that what the Bible is speaking of is a Messiah, but that Messiah who would save his people would have to suffer first. And as Paul continues to speak, he introduces the name of a Galilean rabbi named Jesus and says, this Jesus... From Galilee, this Jesus of Nazareth who suffered and died on the cross is that Messiah who has fulfilled promises and has risen again and brought salvation to the world. And as he speaks, something happens if you were in Thessalonica, you would have heard many, many public speakers. There were itinerant speakers going all over the place. That in some ways almost was people's form of entertainment. And yet Paul, Paul was different from wherever, whoever else they had heard. He, he didn't speak with a real polish. He doesn't have this clever turn of phrase or a captivating demeanor that some have. He also doesn't have this, this authoritative presence. I mean, he is, he is, physically not even capable of that level of authority. He is just speaking with simplicity and with earnestness. And yet as he speaks, with his words come power. Paul remembers that in their presence as he is writing to them. Verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. As people were listening, they they found themselves kind of leaning forward, trying to hear every word this man was saying about these extraordinarily strange things. There was this sense that people had, though they couldn't understand why. They knew that what they were hearing right now was going to define their lives one way or another. It was, there was something about Paul who was just so convinced of what he was saying. He was so clearly certain of the truth that he spoke. And he so passionately believed it was the most important thing that he could possibly say. And inexplicably to them, as he spoke, it was also clear that he longed. He longed for them to understand and believe what he was saying. There was power. There was force to his words, and as a result, many people changed. People don't change. You probably heard people say that. It's, I think, a common idea. People don't change. It can sound cynical, but, but it's rooted in experience, Right? I mean, whenever someone says to you, I'm sorry, I'll try not to do it again, you kind of already, if you've lived long enough, just prepare yourself for it to happen again. It's not that people are, are, are badly intentioned. People mean to become less messy. They mean to be more on time. People intend to become more gentle and lose their anger less. People intend to stop drinking so much, and yet the intention so rarely leads to real change. And we know that because we, as we seek to become different people, find ourselves again and again falling back into the way we've always been. It is hard to believe at times that it's even possible for change to take place because it's so unusual. And yet, change is exactly what happened here. In fact, the change was so profound, so extraordinary, that, that everyone around noticed, and it start, the word started spreading. So what Paul will say in verse 9, talks about, oh, sorry, verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God, from idols to serve the living and true God. The change that happened in you was so profound that the whole region, city after city, Philippi, Corinth, everywhere, is hearing about how you changed, about how when you heard, you believed. And not just that, sure, I believe this, but you you suddenly had this deep conviction that what I have been saying to you is true and changes everything. And, and you were changed in such a way that you realize that now you knew. You know the living God. Have you ever thought of God in that way? Not, not just as a force or as a character, but as someone who is living who is active and unpredictable. You came to know the living God. Now, many of these people, as we mentioned last week, were were God-fearers. That is, they had been coming to the synagogue, they were warm towards Judaism, and yet probably many of them also had maintained their previous practices. They they had a family religion that was a part of their identity. They had a state religion that was part of their patriotism, and so they had been holding on to those things while also being interested in this God, but now things were different. Because now... What they wanted was to please and to live for the true and living God. And so as they heard these things, they stopped their former way of life. They, they cut off their idolatries. And that was costly. So we might have noticed in verse 6, it says, you received the word in much affliction. I, I've had friends who have left uh, Muslim faith, friends who have moved from Catholicism to Protestantism, and sometimes when things like that happens, if it is so integral to kind of the family identity, the family can get really offended. The family sometimes actually can kind of disconnect themselves from this person who's changed their understanding. And, and that is almost certainly what would have happened in this time. Your, your most intimate loved ones, your parents, your siblings, even potentially your spouse, people who were your identity suddenly refused to speak to you. Your business, which has people who have come again and again because they trust you. Suddenly no one is coming anymore because who are you? You don't have the same patriotism we have. That is what would have happened to these people as, as they moved from their idolatrous practices to serve the true and living God. And yet even within all of this suffering, notice how they respond. It says, you received, again in verse 6, the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They, they would gather together and as they sang, their songs would be filled with passion. They would pray sometimes with tears. They would, they would have joyful celebration. There was this deep, rich joy that had filled them. And, and with this this new conviction and this new joy. This joy, this joy that they had, not, not just because they knew God, but now they knew that God loved them. Notice how it ends in verse 10, that not only have they turned to serve the living in God, but to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us. They heard for the first time that God gave his son to rescue them. That now they did not need to fear God, but that God was for them. And that at the very end of all things, Jesus would come to rescue them. And so their lives were now oriented towards waiting and longing to see this Jesus who had saved them. This Jesus whom they loved without even ever having met face to face. They were filled with conviction and with joy. And as a result, they adopted a new way of life. So again, finally, uh, in verse 6, you... Became imitators of us you know when when your life is turned upside down and suddenly for the first time you see things differently and you realize God is here he is present, he is real he loves me, I have a future you don't know exactly what to do and it's not like you can have like three steps and everything makes sense So, so they're fumbling to figure out what do we do now and they just start looking at Paul and they look at Silas and they say how are they and they see in Paul and Silas this, this generosity. Notice when, when Paul says that, he, it's not just that he spoke. It says, and, and you yourself know the lives we lived among you. How, how they any moment of any day if someone knocked on the door of where they were staying and said hey we would love to hear more that he would stop what he was doing and he would spend hours no matter who you were just sharing about Jesus and then whenever you wanted to pay Paul and say hey you know what you've done so much how about we support you Paul would say no I refuse this is a gift to you and he would work throughout the week to try to earn things that's the life that he lived a life of love and so as they were trying to figure out, how do I live, they, they looked at this example and was like, we, we want to love like that. As, as they saw Paul's passion to make Jesus known, they're like, okay, we, we want to live like that. Paul says, you remember this, right? You, you remember how you became imitators of us. And I imagine in Paul's mind, he, he remembers different moments, like, Like that moment where where John and, and Sal, who had not been talking to each other for years, because they knew they were supposed to love made up and became friends again he remembers how when this other person had lost his business lost his income because of persecution how everyone else in the church pulled from their own resources even if they didn't have much to support him he remembers how some of the people that started following him said hey when you start meeting with people one-on-one can I come with you because I want to learn how to speak to other people about Jesus you remember Paul says of how you became imitators of us And even as Paul remembers that, he is filled with an even deeper joy because he knows that what happens, this dramatic transformation, lasted. We spoke of this last week. We'll look at this again because it it appears at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 of how Paul was forced to leave just about six or seven weeks into his time of trying to teach and mentor these new Christians. And as he leaves, he's leaving with fear. These, what's going to happen to them? Because you know how sometimes there can be this kind of like short-term change, excitement that then just kind of regresses back to the norm, and in the end nothing happens. And that's what Paul's fear is, that, that all of this will have just been a short-term thing and people will go back to their ways because it's going to be so hard to follow Jesus in this context. So he sends Timothy. Timothy comes back months later, and, and Paul hears. He hears that this church is continuing, that they are continuing to live life of imitating not only Paul, but life of imitating Jesus, that they are continuing to love, continuing to speak the gospel. And so, so he celebrates. I mean, this is how he began. He talks about we mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father. Your work of faith, this was not just some belief. You, you changed. Remembering your labor of love, this was more than just a feeling. You gave of yourselves in love to others. And remembering the steadfastness of hope. You're continuing on. This is real. God acted. That's... That's what's being described here. And I, and I want to come back to the two observations I mentioned before. First, I hope you see that what's being described here really happened. Sometimes I think we can wonder, is this just kind of the Bible kind of making some things up just to kind of convince us? When we're most honest with ourselves, that's a fear that we have, even though I think ultimately it is unfounded. But especially here, notice that this is, this is not some sort of piece of propaganda. This is just a letter between Paul to his friends, where Paul has no expectations that anyone else is ever going to read it besides the Thessalonians. And he's recounting stuff that they have all experienced together. It's not like Paul could suddenly make stuff up. The Thessalonians would be like, what is Paul talking about? I have no idea. Paul Paul is sharing something that they all agree on. You remember how when I spoke, you responded, yes, of course we remember. You remember the joy you had even as you were persecuted. Yeah, we remember that too. You remember how you became imitators of us and you're continuing on. And people are talking about it. Oh, yes, Paul, we know all of that. This, this really took place we have documented evidence with witnesses and and secondly the the most reasonable explanation for what happened is that god acted what other explanation do we have for when people who by all intents and appearances, look like failures, come and they speak to people about a Galilean peasant who is rejected by all the trusted authorities and was killed as a criminal, that this person is their savior. And people believed. How do we explain that? And how do we explain not only that they believed, but people's lives were dramatically changed where they were willing to part with ways of things that they had done for decades, part with friends and neighbors at great cost to themselves, and yet somehow were filled with joy. How do we explain them enduring, not just in the face of suffering, but even when their mentor, the person who maybe influenced them to begin with, when he leaves, how do we explain them continuing on in faith and hope and love? It's an act of God. Paul is absolutely convinced that's what it is. Notice the way he speaks of it. He, he speaks, he says, we give thanks to God. I thank God as I remember this because I saw God act, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. For we know, verse 4, brothers, loved by God. We know that you are loved. We know that you are our spiritual brothers and sisters, and we know that He has chosen you. God this isn't some sort of impersonal force. God has chosen to love you. And here's how we know that he has chosen to love you. Because we saw it. Verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, He is saying, you realize, right, that when I came speaking, I wasn't actually that good of a speaker. That what you were experiencing in that moment was not me but God reaching into your hearts and opening your hearts and opening your minds to the truth. And he keeps on speaking of God's involvement in verse 6 when again he says that when you received these things, you, uh, you know, it says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You realize, brothers and sisters, that what happened here when you experience loss and you rejoiced in the middle of it, that that's not just because you're particularly cheerful people. You, you, real, you realize, don't you, that what happened was God is there working in you. You realize that change doesn't just happen like this, that God was involved opening your hearts, opening your minds, leading you to him. This was an act of God. You know, in recent studies, a recent survey, this was just a couple years ago, in America, even as people are becoming disconnected from churches, it still is around the case that 80% of our country will say that they believe in God, which is interesting to me because uh, if you think about, say, casual conversations, how often do you think in casual conversations between friends do people just talk about God naturally? Or how often in the stories that we tell, whether it's in TV or movies or books, is God somehow involved either explicitly or implicitly in the story? Or when our our news seeks to describe the world, how often is God part of that description? It's almost never, right? Which means it seems like we actually have kind of come to some sort of national consensus that God exists But he's removed. Maybe people would say, yes, this world, if you look at it, how could it have come into things by chance? God made it, but we're too small and he's too important for him to be involved in our lives. Or maybe others will say, I don't think I believe in God as personal. I think he's just a a life force that's just kind of around us. But however people think of God, it seems like he is not relevant enough to think of him as being active, present personally making himself known, and the Thessalonian church raises their hand and say, counterpoint, he is. Because we have experienced it. We've experienced how the Spirit opens our hearts and our minds. We've experienced how God's Spirit gives us a joy. We have experienced a change that lasts in ways that we cannot explain. We have seen it. Paul says, I have experienced, I've seen it firsthand, the Thessalonian church has experienced it firsthand. this has happened, and if we have eyes and ears to hear, we can see this as well. And it breaks through our skepticism, or at least it's meant to. Because here's why this is important. If if this really happens... And this was really a divine act of God personally getting involved. If that's how God is, shouldn't we expect that God to act in the very same way here with us in this moment? You know, if we could somehow listen to everyone, we would hear countless moments evidences of God's involvement some of us have stories of God opening our eyes up suddenly in the middle of our lives and for the first time we see his reality others of us have story of God's faithfulness of even as an infant coming to understand things and yet even as we're tempted again and again we never depart from this faith because God held on to us that's God many of us have moments that we could describe of surprising answers to prayer Many of us have patterns where bit by bit, sometimes it seems slowly, we see this pattern of us changing and growing that can only be explained by God being at work in us. And though for each of us individually, it can feel so small and so fragile, and we wonder if we're just imagining things at times. If we put it all together, if we heard every single person's story, what other conclusion could we come to? but that God is active and present among us. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, there's a part of us that knows this. We we have said that we believe God is active. We believe in the Holy Spirit, we just confessed, and yet it is so easy for us to forget, isn't it? I mean, it's so easy to forget that that the truths that we are reflecting on every week are more than just interesting facts, more than just inspirational stories, that there is the word of God that is powerfully able to turn our lives upside down. It's so easy to forget that that when we are gathering together, it's more than just an outdoor fun time together, even though that's that, but that the terrifyingly, mysteriously wonderful Holy Spirit is here with us right now. It's so easy to forget when we are praying, and boy, do our prayers feel weak at times, that we have this direct line to the Creator of the universe who is so immensely powerful and who gives has great joy in answering our prayers because of his love for us. It is so easy for us to forget this. And I suspect it probably was getting easy for the Thessalonian church to forget this as well. Which is why Paul is writing this. Remember. Remember that God is active Don't let your story be displaced by the things around you. And he is saying that to us. Don't let your story be displaced. Recognize that God is in you, in your life, in this church, acting. And I think there is a second thing that this letter has for us. Not only is is God inviting us to recognize his presence, but he's also inviting us into a new way. You know, one of the challenges is when we start actually allowing this reality to settle into our minds and our hearts, that God is acting, that he is the one who who opens our minds to understand that as we are growing in love, that is the work of God, that as we are gathering together, the spirit is present. When we start realizing one of the mistakes that's easy for us to make is to say, okay, well, I guess if God is so present, then the thing for me to do is to just kind of step back and let God do his work, and I'll just kind of let him do it on his own timing. But actually, if we look at what we just read, we'll recognize a, a, a different expectation that Paul has. So hopefully already you've noticed there's this theme of imitation. As we mentioned, as, as they experience God acting in their lives, they're not sure what they do and what do they do. They look at Paul and they try to understand how Paul acts. And even as they're imitating him, they're imitating Jesus and they're learning what it looks like to start loving each other and they're learning what it looks like to have this life of mission. But that's not where the imitation story ends. When Paul says, you yourself know that you have become an example to believers throughout, that, that as, as their lives are being changed, now other Christians are meant to look at them and say, okay, that looks right. We're going to follow it as well. In other words, it would seem... That the way the holy spirit works to form and change us is through imitation is through example yes god does tell us specific things about what it looks like to to follow him that he calls us to be filled by the spirit he calls us to pray without ceasing there are some explicit instructions but i think at least as common as the simple command to look and to imitate to look at paul to look At Jesus, And in this case, to look at the Thessalonian church. Because as we watch, we are being taught how to engage in this divine dance of God's activity and our receptivity. And so I'd like, if you are willing to, to give some homework for this week. Many of you are in discipleship groups, maybe I think 75 or 80 are studying 1 Thessalonians together. And if that's you, when you are looking at chapter 1, maybe even this week, I want you to just think, what does it look like to imitate them? Or if you're not in a discipleship group, just study chapter one and look at this example and try to imagine what would it look like for me to follow this example. I believe that as we listen, as we seek to learn, we will find ourselves being taught both how to aspire and what to expect. We will find ourselves growing more fervent in prayer that God would convict us of the reality that we can please him and that our future is certain so that we would learn to wait for Jesus as we as we pray and as we listen and as we watch we will seek to open ourselves up to that reality we will pray for the spirit to fill us with joy We will seek to start learning what it looks like to love each other and to love the world as Jesus has loved us. And we will long more and more deeply to be a community that actually is an example to the world around us. Would you please consider what it looks like to imitate what we see here? I just want to close with just one final thing. And I feel kind of sheepish even trying to say this because I've been talking the last half hour and my words, some have been confusing, probably not helpful, hopefully some have. My words are just human words, but what I, I want you all to also recognize is that what we're looking at together aren't just human words, that, that the passage that we have just been reading is God's word. And, and the Bible says that as we expose ourselves to God's word, God speaks to us. And so I want to just suggest if you have, as you've been just listening and thinking and imagining, if you've been feeling some kind of pull, some kind of inner pressure directing you, some some growing desire to serve God, to trust Jesus, to, to learn to follow him more faithfully, I want to suggest to you that what you are experiencing in some way is God actively reaching out to you and drawing you to himself. And so I, I want us to close our time right now just listening and even as we listen, responding to God in prayer and silence. If, if God has exposed something, I invite you to confess it to him. If God has exposed a longing, I, I invite you to reach out to him. And in a couple minutes' time, I will lead us in prayer. So let's just spend some time before God as he is here with us in, in silent prayer.